as we continue our worship by for uh, focusing our minds on the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 2, John chapter 2 for this message entitled, Glory Saves a Wedding. Glory Saves a Wedding. Our text for today is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and in this text we see the glory of Jesus Christ manifested the very first time at a wedding through an act of creation. Follow along as I read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there a few days. Our Father, with this text before us, we submit our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit would teach us today. Open our minds, illumine our hearts, show us Christ. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. For those among us who need it, young and old, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and life to the dead. We believe that Only you, Holy Spirit, can save and sanctify, and we pray that you would do it for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. There is glory in this text. Did you see it? In verse 11, the Apostle John tells us that what we read is a manifestation of the glory of of Jesus. Don't let your familiarity with this passage lull you to sleep this morning. There is a glory to behold here if we would give our minds to consider what happened at this wedding. And we have to see this glory if we're going to understand why the Holy Spirit inspired this passage so that unbelievers would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believers would know that Jesus is able to rescue us from all our trouble. 
We're going to walk through this passage under four headings. First, we'll see the setting in verses 1 and 2. Then the setback in verses 3 to 5. The sign in verses 6 to 10. And finally, the significance in verse 11. The setting, the setback, the sign, and the significance. That'll just help us keep track of where we are as we walk through the narrative. We begin with the setting in verses 1 and 2. Look at it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Most English translations don't uh, translate it, but the first word in the Greek is actually and. So it should be and on the third day. That connects this section to the three days of events that span chapter 1, verses 19, all the way through chapter 1, verse 51. The third day, then, is the third day since Jesus met Nathanael, which we read about in that last section of chapter 1, which makes it, then, six days since Jesus was publicly proclaimed by John the Baptist as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Six days from that momentous event, Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in Cana with Jesus' family as well. Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus and his family live. Nine miles is about half a day's travel, which would make Jesus and his family outside of the local community of this family, likely meaning that those who were getting married were relatives or very close friends of Jesus and his family. In that day, weddings were not partial day events like they are today, where uh, a bride and a groom spend many months and thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars planning for a 30-minute ceremony and just a few hours long reception. There was no such thing as a small private wedding. No, weddings were week-long celebrations and included many in the community as well as some outside the community, especially, of course, family and friends. You know, we actually have no formal records of what a a ceremony would happen uh, during that wedding that would officially mark the the marriage of that couple. There was that time where uh, at the very beginning, the groom would go to the bride's house along with his groomsmen celebrating, pick her up, if you will, not physically, but bring her back to the, the father's house, the groom's father's house, along with her bridesmaids waiting And they would celebrate that. And the first day of that week-long celebration would mark the transition from betrothal to marriage. And where we would typically send a couple off after that first uh, ceremony for a week-long honeymoon or so, they had no such thing. The bride and the groom would spend their first night together in a specially prepared bridal chamber. But then the next day they would be right around and for the rest of the week, the center of attention by all at the festival activities celebrating their marriage. Whatever else might be involved in the week-long celebration, there was expected to be an abundance of food and drink for everyone to enjoy. Abundance was the name of the game. And assuming that Jesus and his disciples came on the day of the wedding, there's a number of days that pass between verses 2 and 3. We don't we can't be sure how many exactly, but presumably the, the wine that was provided for that celebration was intended to last for the full week. But since it ran out, this is probably several days into what was pr- probably seven days 
of feasting. So it would seem that they had at this point been enjoying several days of, of celebration, fun, festivities, enjoying one another. Certainly Jesus and his disciples getting to know one another as they had not known each other for that long. Of course, Jesus knowing everything about them, but them not knowing him as well. So that's the setting. They're at this wedding celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness in the wedding of this couple. So the wedding in Cana is the setting. Now consider the setback in verses three and five, or three to five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We've all heard about, and perhaps some of you have experienced some epic failures in weddings. Maybe you've seen that video clip of a, a couple having a, their wedding ceremony right in front of a pool, and the best man is going to give the ring to the minister, but he trips on the steps and sends the minister and the bride into the pool behind them. Or there's the wedding party that's taking their pictures on a dock over a lake, and the, cop, the, the dock collapses beneath them. There's the minister that never showed up. And then there's the invitation that sent the, wrong, the address of the wrong church in the wrong city, and no one noticed until they started showing up in the wrong place. These kinds of failures, of course, cause all kinds of emotions in the moment, but they tend to make great stories once the shock has worn off. The failure at this wedding ceremony is not that kind of failure. In fact, calling it a setback was essential to alliterating the outline. But this is actually a tragedy in the making. For you fathers who were shocked by the sticker price of providing a, a single meal to the guests at your daughter's wedding, imagine what it would cost to feed a whole community for a week. But you're off the hook, actually, because at this time, it was the father of the groom who was responsible to provide for the wedding. And when I say he was responsible to pay for the food and the festivities, the wine and all that was involved, that's not a wedding you could take lightly. Like, let's choose the meatballs instead of the lobster. This was a shame culture, which means that if you failed or shirked your responsibility to provide adequately for a wedding, you brought shame upon yourself, your family, and now this new couple that is getting married. But it gets worse than that. If the father of the groom failed to sufficiently provide for the wedding, he not only shamed him, himself and his family and the groom and his daughter-in-law now, he brought shame on her family as well. Because after all, her father agreed to give her daughter to this man's son. And this was not a shame that would just wear off over time and turn into funny stories. This was a shame that had an impact on your status in the community and even your economic opportunities. There were even legal implications. Again, if you did not provide adequately for the wedding celebration, the bride's family could sue you because of how that failure had implications for their lives and livelihood. And so I say again that running out of wine was a tragedy in the making. 
However she found out about this, Mary understood the significance of what was taking place. So she finds Jesus and says to him simply, they've run out of wine. Now from where we sit, it's easy for us to understand why she would go to Jesus to get involved. But if we think it's because she knew he could somehow miraculously provide for this ceremony, we would be wrong. Understand that this happened before Jesus died and rose again. This happened before Jesus healed the sick, the lame, and the blind, before He cast demons out, before He calmed the storms, before He fed thousands and thousands of people with a child's meal. None of that had happened yet. In fact, in verse 11, remember it says that this is the first sign, the first miracle that He performs. That's important because that means it's quite unlikely that Mary is asking Jesus to do something miraculous in response to the situation. Mary knows Jesus by virtue of the revelation that was given to her and Joseph by the angel Gabriel at his birth. She treasured in her heart the memory of the shepherds and the wise men. She remembers how when Jesus was 12, he went off by himself to the temple and stayed there for several days being in his father's house. And it's likely that by now she's been told of what John the Baptist said about her son, that he is the Lamb of God. But she has not known Jesus to perform miracles. So what is Mary thinking? Why does she assume that Jesus can solve the problem if she's not expecting a miracle? Well, let's think about this together. Though Jesus is truly human, he is sinless. Which is to say that his character is perfect. It's holy. It's undefiled. He is perfectly humble and kind and gracious and faithful. He perfectly loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he perfectly loves his neighbor as himself. Think about what kind of activity that character produces. Jesus would have done all things with excellence. He would have been trustworthy. He would have been hardworking in his responsibilities, creative in, his, in solving problems, resourceful in addressing needs. He had that perfect balance between being people-oriented and task-oriented. And as a 30-year-old man, Jesus would have demonstrated these qualities for a number of years as he provided for himself and his family. With Jesus in the home, Mary probably never had the thought, if you, gotta, if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. Now, she probably thought many times, if you want it done right, God, have Jesus do it. <laughs> so in this moment, where there's a major problem, not only for the guests at the party, but also for the bride and groom and their family's long-term social standing, there was no one better to find a solution than Jesus. Well, look at Jesus' response in verse 4. He said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Immediately, we're confronted with how Jesus addresses his mother. He doesn't use her name. He doesn't refer to her as mother. He doesn't use a term that we would recognize as soft and respectful. Some say that woman here is like saying ma'am, like Jesus is a good southern son. But really, there's no evidence for that in ancient Greek literature. 
What commentators agree on is that this is not disrespectful as it would be in our culture if a son said that. But it is distancing. By, by saying woman, he's respectfully but directly placing space between them, indicating that their relationship has changed. She has no authority over him, and she cannot ask him to do things that would go outside or redirect his God-given purpose. Now, that's, this doesn't mean that his relationship to his family has fundamentally changed. In fact, in verse 12, we learn that they go to Capernaum. Uh, it says, therefore, a few days, Matthew tells us that uh, they moved. So perhaps this first trip was to check out homes, and then they ended up moving there later. But later in his ministry, there was a time when Jesus was uh, teaching in someone's home. It was so crowded, his family couldn't get in and they wanted to talk to him. And so they stood outside and someone called out to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside wanting to talk to you. And Jesus said to the crowd who was gathered there, who is my mother and my brothers? Who, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So again, Jesus distanced himself from his family, not, not to cut off that relationship because even as he hung on the cross with his mother before him, she, he said to her, woman, behold your son. And he entrusted the care of his mother to John the apostle who was also there with her. So there was no br ultimate break in the relationship, but there was a change in the relationship. The rest of his answer is curious and actually difficult to translate precisely. Literally, the Greek says, what to you and to me? Or rather, what to you and to me? But that's recognized as an idiom in the Greek that means something like, what does this have to do with us? Or what is this concern of yours to do with me? Or as it says here in the ESV, what does this have to do with me? Whatever the precise meaning is, the general idea is clear. Jesus is effectively saying, what are you expecting me to do about this? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, flip over to me, or with me, with, to John 7. John chapter 7, just a few pages. In John 7, Jesus taught in the temple... And the people were beginning to draw the conclusion that he must be the Messiah, which, of course, upset the religious leaders. And so it says in John chapter 7, verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Flip over to chapter 8. Also in chapter 8, Jesus was declaring himself to be the light of the world, which naturally upset the religious leaders. And so it said again in verse 20 of chapter 8, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now turn over to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 20, a number of Gentiles who had converted to Judaism wanted to talk to Jesus, and when Andrew comes to Jesus to tell him about this. Jesus responds in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then again in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this 
hour. And then look over at chapter 13, verse 1. Now therefore, or rather, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then finally, chapter 17, verse 1. This is the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer. It says, Jesus had spoken these words, or when he had spoken these words, what he had said to the disciples up to this point, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. All of those passages point to the fact that the hour of Christ is the hour of His redeeming work on the cross. There was a time when the Lord would not let the enemies of Christ arrest Him because it wasn't time yet. It was too early. But the time came when His hour arrived and He submitted to the Father's plan and went to the cross. So is that what Jesus means when he says to his own mother, Mother, what are you expecting of me? My hour has not yet come. Well, if you look at the passage and think about what's happening in this moment, it would seem odd at this moment in time for Jesus to say to her, My hour of suffering isn't here yet. Why are you wanting me to solve this problem of running out of wine? That doesn't quite make sense. In light of that, it's best to understand what Jesus is saying is not that his time of suffering hasn't yet arrived, but that the inauguration of his ministry, his public ministry, which will ultimately lead to his suffering, has not yet come. In other words, I haven't started my ministry yet, my public ministry. Now, it's not clear in this gospel or any of the others, when does Jesus' ministry officially and formally begin? Is it his baptism? Is it his victory over the temptations of Satan? Is it the public declaration by John that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Is it, as we'll see in the next section, when Jesus clears out the temple, which he'll do again at the end of his ministry? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't point to a specific moment in Jesus' life where this is the start of his public ministry. Perhaps the closest we can get is sometime around, perhaps after this wedding, when Jesus finds out that John is arrested, and it says in Matthew that Jesus then began to preach. After he found out John was arrested, Jesus began to preach. Well, whatever the case, uh, this wedding happened before Jesus began his public preaching ministry, so it would make sense that Jesus would rebuff any attempt to do a public act that would draw attention to himself, whether it's a miracle or not. So Jesus respectfully but directly communicates to his mother that the nature of their relationship has changed and he's on a timetable that does not correspond to what she's asking him to do. Look at her response in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's a number of ways you can take this. Uh, reading between the lines, if you will, but I agree with those who say that Mary's response is an act of faith. However Mary interpreted Jesus' words, she did not think he would let the problem go unsolved. So instead of discussing it further with him, (laughs) she just gave instructions to the servants to do whatever he says. I see this as not unlike the Gentile woman who 
pleaded with Jesus to heal her daughter who was possessed by a demon. And Jesus responded or really rebuffed her and said, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus was saying, I came, to, I came for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. He said, no, I'm not going to heal your daughter. But then she said out of great faith, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So based on her faith, the Lord healed her daughter. In the same way that he graciously and compassionately healed a Gentile, though he was sent for the Jews, Jesus responded to Mary's act of faith by doing what she wanted, even though his hour had not yet come. So that's the setting and the setback. Let's look at the sign in verses 6 to 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus responds to this crisis in a radically different way than you and I could. He doesn't stress out. He doesn't argue. He doesn't complain. He doesn't, uh, his blood pressure doesn't go up. His mind doesn't start racing. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? In addition to whatever other solutions that he could come up with, which anyone else could come up with, hey, let's see how much money we have and span out to the markets to see how much we can buy. He has options available to him that no one else has because he is, in fact, the creator. John told us this in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When you have that kind of creative power, there are all kinds of things he could have done to solve this problem. But rather than going out to buy wine for this feast, and rather than causing jars or jugs of wine to just appear out of nowhere... Jesus sees these stone jars that are used for purification and decides to use those. Now, this is no incidental detail. These jars were used so that people could wash their hands and wash their cups and their bowls and dishes to maintain ritual, not physical, purity. Listen to Mark chapter 7 verses 3 and 4, which tells us about this tradition that they had. I know this is going to sound bizarre. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Sounds normal to us, doesn't it? Holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, gasp, and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They tried to be clean, but understand, this is not hygiene. They had no concern or understanding of hygiene. They were all concerned about their relationship to God, and they thought they had to wash their hands, their cups, their bowls, their dishes. 
their couches so that they would be in right relationship to God. These jars were used to uphold and perpetuate man-made religion. So listen, when Jesus decides to use these stone jars, which were mostly or entirely empty, having been a few days into the feast, he makes these jars unavailable for the Jewish rite of purification. He was more concerned with the temporary, in terms of the festival itself, and the long-term consequences of running out of wine than he was concerned about ritual cleansing. In so doing, Jesus demonstrates that people are more important than tradition. Throughout his ministry, he proves to be, uh, this proves to be a major point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, where we read about the ritual cleansing, it's in the context of the Pharisees complaining to Jesus that his disciples are eating without washing their hands. And listen to Jesus' response to their complaint. He says in Mark 7, verse 8, you leave, you, you walk away from, this is what he means, you walk away from the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I love that how the ESV puts it. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, does he not? And Jesus understood that solving the problem of the lack of wine was more loving to this couple and to these families than ensuring that they had jars available for man-made religion. Do we have any traditions that we seek to follow so closely that we fail to love people well? That's something to think about. Are we so committed to what we think is right and what we think is best that we forget that our highest goal is to glorify God and serve others? The Pharisees were a people who were happy to violate people as long as they didn't violate their traditions. May that not be true of us. We should be like Christ, who always was ready to forego cultural and personal sensibilities for the sake of loving people well. Now, these six stone water jars, it says, hold, held 20 to 30 gallons each. So let's call it a total of about 150 gallons. That's a lot of water that's about to get turned into wine. We'll talk about what kind of wine this was in a moment, but just to give you a visual picture, this is approximately 750 wine bottles that we would see today. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. To hold 20 to 30 gallons, these stone jars would have been extraordinarily heavy, so if they weren't already near a source of water, it would have taken a good amount of time and effort to fill them up, uh, especially to the brim. 
But eventually they filled them up and they filled them up to the brim. And that's an important detail because if it's full to the brim, you can't add anything to it. And someone could argue, well, Jesus, yeah, sure, he had a lot of water, but then he mixed in some wine. So it was really a diluted wine that he put in. There was nothing special that took place here. No, it's not possible. They were full to the brim. There's also the method that they had of distilling uh, wine, or rather the fruit of the vine, down to a, a kind of syrup, which then you could add to water to make uh, a juice later on. Again, there was no room for anything else to be added because it was full to the brim. Now look at verses 8 to 10. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast would have been a combination of the wedding coordinator of today along with the master of ceremonies. Uh, he was in charge of making sure that everything ran smoothly as well as directing all of the festivities throughout the week. No doubt he would have been told about the problem of this wine that's run out. And now he's being told, hey, a solution has been found. And he even assumed that this was intentional on the part of the groom and his family. When it says there that he called the bridegroom, the word call is the Greek word phoneo, which you can guess how that's come down to us which means to call out or to speak loudly. So it's not that he called the bridegroom over and said, hey, sounds like you found a solution. You know, you did something very interesting here. No, he, he made a public and loud declaration of what has taken place. Everybody heard, this is what's normal, the good wine followed by the bad wine. And they heard this bridegroom, however good the initial wine was, the better wine is has, has come after that. Think about this. Jesus' gracious act preserved the reputation of the host families, but also it elevated their reputation in the community. Rather than being known as stingy or poor, as they would have been if everybody found out they were out of wine, now they're known as generous and lavish. Jesus, of course, will not take credit for what he did. The bridegroom getting the credit preserves Jesus' ministry timeline and it solves the problem in a way that turns a wedding tragedy into a wedding triumph for this new couple. Now, what kind of wine was this? How much specifically alcohol content did it have? The truth is that that question is irrelevant to the purpose of the text. But it's a point that people wonder about because there's an aversion to the, not to the idea that Jesus would have contributed alcohol to a drunken party. That's what some understand the master to mean when he says in verse 10 that when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine comes out. In other words, people are drunk. And in fact, that's exactly what it means. I think the best translation would be when people have become drunk, that's when the poor wine comes out. That word uh, drunk or the verb rather is the same word used in Luke uh, 12, 45, which says, uh, talks about a servant who eats and drinks and gets drunk. 
It's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 5.18 when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but rather be full of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.7, Paul says, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. So that word, methusko, means to be intoxicated to whatever degree one might be intoxicated. But there's no way around the fact that to be drunk is to be intoxicated. So what the master of the feast is saying is that the typical way of handling a wedding feast is that once the guests have had enough to drink, that their senses are dulled and they don't have the same sensitivity to taste, that's when the cheaper and inferior wine comes out. So again, the question becomes, did Jesus just contribute six supersized kegs to a drunken party? <laughs> well, may it never be. The offense of that thought leads some to conclude that this wine was non-alcoholic. The problem with that conclusion, though, is that it depends on a variety of arguments that don't fit the language of the New Testament. It is true that the word wine, oinos, in the Greek is used in different ways, and it can even include to refer to uh, grape juice, the fruit of the vine that has not yet been fermented. And it's also true that there were different kinds of wines which had different words or adjectives to distinguish them like new wine, old wine, sweet wine, sour wine. But it's also true that most of the uses of oinos, wine, in the New Testament requires that there be some kind of fermentation and alcoholic content. Virtually all ancient wine was diluted and uh, compared to what we have today and far less had far less alcoholic content than our modern wine, but it could still lead to intoxication even if it took a little, a little longer than it would today. Otherwise, how could Paul say, don't be drunk with wine? As well, when the church, when the church was founded and the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, how could the, the Jews around them while they were speaking in tongues say, these people are drunk with wine? And Peter responded, it's only 9 a.m. There hasn't been enough time. Now, these ancient people did have ways of stopping fermentation. They have ways of boiling the fruit of the vine to, to kill the yeast that was in it. But the New Testament is replete with evidence that believers were to avoid enslavement to wine, addiction to wine, lingering long over wine, because it would ultimately cause intoxication. So we can't escape that the wine in the Bible had alcohol, and therefore what Jesus made likely included some alcoholic content. But that really isn't the problem of this interpretive issue. The problem is in our assumption that the people at the wedding feast were drunk. The master of the feast, in what he says, described a typical practice in terms of the provision of wine as a general statement. He doesn't specifically say, hey, all these people have, are drunk and now here's the best wine of all. So there's no reason to conclude that the people at this particular wedding feast were intoxicated. In fact, as a general statement, we could say that the Greeks were known for their drunken parties. The Jews were not. So the point of what he says is the standard practice is to start with the best wine and then bring the cheaper inferior wine at the end. But in this case, the best wine came out last. The wine that Jesus created 
was better than the best wine that any man can make. And when he makes something, he makes it perfectly according to his design and his intended purposes. And that includes how he made you. Well, having looked at the setting, the setback, and the sign, we're now ready to consider the significance in verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And Jesus, or rather, and his disciples believed in him. This was the first of his signs, John says. The word sign here is significant. You could call it a miracle. You could call it a wonder, but John calls it a sign. And that's because what Jesus did here, really, uh, all of his signs that are uh, revealed in the Scripture are displays of his power, which call for a response. The miracles that Jesus performed were not ends of themselves. They were a means to an end. They were the manifestation of his glory to which those who see it must respond. Jesus was not a performer of wonders and made a living entertaining people. Rather, he displayed divine power to validate his claims in order to compel a response. Of course, his displays of power and glory benefited people along the way. Of course, everybody he healed, every demon he he, uh, removed, every man and, and person that he raised from the dead, there were extraordinarily personal benefits to those who were the recipients of his miracles. But even those benefits, as great as they were, were not the ultimate ends of his signs. The ultimate goal of his miracles was to signal to people that Jesus is not someone that you can ignore. He's not one of those great people of the world that you hear about or read about and and are amazed at and, and then move on with your life. He's not the subject of an interesting video clip which raises your eyebrow. And then you move on to the next clip. No, Jesus claimed to be God. And he proved that he is God by what he did. And then God validated Jesus' claims and miracles by raising him from the dead. So what we read here is the first of many signs of who Jesus is. Well, John then says that Jesus manifested his glory. I told you at the beginning that there's glory in this text. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we studied that, I focused on the glory of God as represented by His character, that He is full of grace and truth. That is the kind of God who made us and whom we worship and serve, and that is who Jesus is. But here, we see Jesus display the glory of God by demonstrating the power of God and doing what only God can do. As you think about the sign that Jesus performed, notice that he didn't do anything observable to change the water into wine. He didn't say anything to turn the water into wine. 
How did the water turn into wine? Jesus willed it. He willed it in his heart, and it happened. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then John 1, 1 tells us that Jesus is the word, the word of God. Therefore, he doesn't need to speak anything to accomplish his will, because he himself is the agent of creation. So he simply wills, and it's done. But let's get even more specific. How how can water turn into wine? What is required for water to turn into wine? And we have the elements for the Lord's Supper before us. If the ladies who prepared it had put water into those little cups, what would be necessary for that water to turn into wine? Or the fruit of the vine, in our case. Answer? The very fabric of nature would have to change. These jars that Jesus had filled were full of water molecules. Water molecules are made up of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. I know I shouldn't have had to look at my notes for that, but (laughs) (laughs) you were all saying, come on, you, you know this, it's oxygen. Wine molecules are made up of hydrogen, oxygen, and a lot of other chemical compounds that, frankly, I didn't write out because I can't pronounce them. Without changing the volume of liquid in these jars, Jesus changed the atoms and the molecular structure of the water in those jars. He brought into existence chemicals in those jars that did not exist. And he rearranged the hydrogen and the oxygen atoms that were already there. And he fit them all together perfectly in proper proportion to make the best wine that anyone has ever tasted. To do that, it was required that Jesus exercise the same power that God exercised in the creation of the universe where he both brought into existence that which did not exist, and he altered the atomic and molecular structure of the universe until he completed the work of creation on the sixth day. Jesus didn't pray, Father, would you please turn this water into wine? There was no declaration, let there be wine. He didn't move his hands over the water to turn it into wine. He didn't get anyone else involved in this act. He created the wine simply by willing that nature itself change. This is unfathomable glory and power. Do you know what this means? If Jesus, who is the Son of God, which is to say He shares the very nature of God, if Jesus can alter nature to turn water into wine, It means that he can do anything that he wants to do. What can stop him from doing what he wants? Nothing. Who can stop Jesus from accomplishing his purposes? No one. What power or person exists that can thwart the will of Christ? None. Compared to the creation of the billions of stars in the universe turning 
150 gallons of water into wine is relatively insignificant. But that small act tells us that when Jesus faces a problem and determines to solve it, He is not bound by the kinds of solutions that you and I can come up with. If He deems it necessary, He can simply alter existence as it is to conform it to what He wants it to be. Beloved, when you pray, it is not at all wrong to ask God to answer your prayers in a particular way. But do not think that God is limited by the solutions you can come up with. And if you can't come up with any solutions, don't think that God is limited by your inability to find one. We, of course, are bound by our knowledge and resources, whatever research we're able to do, relations and relationships and connections that we have that for us are how we come up with proposed solutions that we offer to God. But God knows all 8 billion people on the planet. He knows all the available resources and He can put together solutions in an instant that you and I couldn't come up with in a lifetime. And if the solution that he wants doesn't exist with the current material universe, he can simply speak it into existence. That is the kind of worship, rather the kind of God we worship. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ that he manifested at this wedding. And that, beloved, is the power of Christ that is at work in you, in your life. That is at work for your good and to which you can appeal in your time of need. This power is what solved the greatest problem the world has ever known. The greatest problem in the world that has spanned throughout all of history is that mankind has sinned against God. We have violated God's law and therefore we deserve the just condemnation That is due to us. In our natural and sinful condition, we hate God. We read that in Colossians 1. And we demonstrate that hatred by ignoring Him and rejecting His standard of truth and right and wrong. We live our own way, and in doing so, we demonstrate we believe that we would be better off with God dead. But because of who God is, that He is the creator of all things and sustainer of life and the provider of every good thing, to think that we are better off with God dead is to wish death upon ourselves. And that's the punishment that we deserve for our disdain of God. This is the greatest problem that mankind has. It's a far greater problem than running out of wine at a wedding. It's a far greater problem than the struggles you have in your family. It's, It's a greater problem for those of you who aren't married and you desperately desire to be married. It's a greater problem than the multitude of sorrowful circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's a greater problem than depression and anxiety and PTSD and addictions. Our greatest problem is that we have sinned against God and we deserve His wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy... He provided a solution that no one could come up with. 
He sent His own Son with whom He enjoyed glory and joy and love for all eternity. And Jesus came into this world as a baby. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And at the cross, He endured the wrath of God on Himself that sinners deserved. And having received on Himself the punishment for sin, He died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And all this He did by the power of God to forgive, in order to forgive and redeem sinners. We read here at the end of verse 11, His disciples believed in Him when they witnessed that display of glory. They had much still to learn, of course, about Jesus, but they had seen enough. They believed that He is indeed the Messiah. What about you? You've heard today that Jesus manifested His glory by changing the very fabric of nature to turn water into wine. You've heard that, as we know from the rest of Scripture, that He gave His life, He died, and He rose again to bring forgiveness for sinners. Believe in Him today. You can have your sins forgiven. Have the greatest problem that hangs over your head solved because of what Jesus did on the cross and through His resurrection. Let's pray. And as I pray, the men can come to serve the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text... It's shameful how easily we can look at it at a surface level. We can see the the basic facts and not give much thought to it. But I pray that you would help us today to see the glory of Jesus Christ in a fresh way. That we would see his power on display through this, what for him is a simple act for us is impossible. And that we would see that he is able to do, if he is able to do that, he can do anything that he desires to do for us. May we put our trust in him. May we believe on him again, affirming our conviction that he died and rose again on our behalf. And would we trust him knowing that he is powerful. And as it says, in your word, that he is able to do abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. Lord, as we look at this coming year, we don't know what's going to happen. We have no idea if we're going to live till tomorrow. We have hopes, we have desires, we have plans, but we don't know. I pray that you would do such a marvelous work among us that this year would be a year where we could mark as the year that we grew in our love for you, in our worship of you, in our trust of you, because we see your glory greater than we ever have before. And even now as we celebrate the work at the cross, would you thrill our souls 
with the grace and the love and work of Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.